All right. So we're going through church history. We're in the, the modern age, the 20th century. We have been talking about uh, World War II, how that changed things, the new conservatism that came out of that um, in, in, the, in the later 40s, the 1950s, into the 60s. There's a strong political conservatism, but we've been talking specifically about a, a theological conservatism, a, a new evangelicalism. But increasingly, that theological conservatism and political or social conservatism have been intertwining, which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on which side of that fence you tend to stand on. Um, there isn't anything innately... Uh, there's no innate reason why biblical conservatism has to jive with everything in political conservatism. There are some things in political liberalism that jive nicely with scripture. I have a friend that, that was a, a strong Democrat because of his faith in Christ. He's like, I want to be there for the party that takes care of the poor. So to him, being a, li a political liberal meant being a theological conservative and vice versa. Having said that, there's other aspects of this that, that you can see why a lot of political conservatives see themselves drawn to political theology, or uh, conservative theology, and vice versa. But with anything, there's always a backlash. If there's a, if there's a movement toward liberalism, there's going to be a backlash toward conservatism. And since there's been a strong push toward conservatism, there's going to be a backlash from society. 1966, the Hare Krishna cult is founded. You ever, ever see any? Okay, good. It's not actually called the Hare Krishnas. They don't call themselves that. That's a pejorative that other people do call them. It's the International Society for Krishna Consciousness is the official name of the group, ISKCON. It's founded in New York City when a 70-year-old A.C. Bhaktivedanta, a.k.a. the Swami Prabhupada, came to America. He was born in Bangladesh. Remember, we've talked multiple times about Bangladesh. And he was given the title Bhaktivedanta, which means devotion to complete knowledge. He, that was kind of an, uh, an honorary title. And then later, as he began teaching people, he was called uh, the Swami Prabhuvada, which means the one who takes shelter in the Lord. So neither of those is technically his name. They're honorary titles. Kind of like Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. People still call him Christ as if that were his name. Anyway. But he was educated in Hinduism, a specific branch of Hinduism, and he came to understand that all religions really point to one deity. Just one. No matter where you're coming at it, because Hinduism, there's, there's literally millions of gods in Hinduism, and it's all very complex as to how they interrelate. But he says, Krishna, the eighth incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu, the only clearly supreme being. This, this is God. And everybody is ultimately pointing to Krishna, though you could you could call him Krishna, that's his that's his most accurate name. You could call him Hare, which is his feminine aspect, or maybe his his consort. It's Hare is maybe his wife, or it may be just sometimes he appears as a female, or maybe it's just his feminine side. Again, a lot of nuances in Hinduism. Exactly what that means. It means whatever you want it to mean. Or Rama, who's an earlier avatar of Vishnu, who is the personification of sensual pleasure in Hinduism. Being happy, being plump, being just feeling good. That's 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 Rama. Or Jesus Christ, same thing. You call him Jesus Christ, you call him Krishna, you call him her, Hare, 
you're so all pointing to the same God, which is which is Krishna, and his current incarnation on Earth is clearly Bhaktivedanta, the Swami Prabhupada. So if if you want to honor Christ, if you want to honor Vishnu, if you want to honor Hare, if you want to honor Rama, if you want to honor Krishna, any of these, if you want to honor Buddha, you want to honor any God, worship the Swami. I mean, that's clear to anybody that's thinking, right? Y'all follow that. So, you can have an intimate relationship with God by chanting various derivations of his name over and over and over again. That's how you go closer to the Lord, is by knowing his name and saying it over and over. Hare Krishna, Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, all the different permutations. And you and I'm not but this is and this is the thing, I'm not making fun of that. I mean that's this is what you do. It's different derivations of the name. Which is how they got the pejorative name Hare Krishna's. Because they'd start with Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and people go, So there's a Hare Krishna's. No 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 no. It's it's Iskan and they're 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 following the Swami. This is just the first couple of words of what they chant. So Hare Krishna's. Well no. So anytime you hear people, oh, it's the Hare Krishna, you go, man, no. That's just the first one. But if you just keep chanting this over and over, 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 that brings you close to God. Because it gets you farther away from you. The whole point is that it's transcendental. It transcends your mind. And if you want to get close to God, you have to transcend your mind. You have to get away from thinking and being able to understand things. You experience God. You don't understand it. You experience God. You don't think about him. You experience God. You feel it. And so the more you get out of your skull, the less you think about taxes, the less you think about your computer, the less you think about relationships with people, the less you think about, the more you just think Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Rama Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Krishna, the more you just do that, all your troubles just fall away. Right? The less you think about the world around you, and the more you just think about those three words and every kind of permutation, the simpler life gets, doesn't it? Okay? Yes, you can't think about anything else. Yeah, thank you! It changes the way you think! And now, again, is there a positive to this? Yeah, don't we argue that in Christian meditation, the idea is let the, the rest of the world fall away and focus on the Lord? That's a healthy thing, isn't it? So you just go, you know, all that other stuff is stuff that gets in the way. It's all the, the weeds. You have to weed whack and, and, and remind ourselves of the important things. Which is different than, okay, stop thinking altogether. You need to, only, don't even try to focus on your relationship with God. Don't try to focus on who he is and his personhood and his character. No, just the names. You've stopped thinking, which means you've stopped thinking about anything else, which means you stop worrying, which kind of feels like joy. Though it's not necessarily the joy that God is talking about in Scripture. But that's exactly what really affected the people in the United States at that time. Again, there's a backlash to their parents' conservatism. They've, they've spent the last two decades having parents that say, all that matters, and obviously not everybody, but there's a move in, in, the, in, the, in the United States of, of churches saying, all that matters is that you look right. 
Make sure you have the right kind of house, the right kind of car, the right kind of shirts. Make sure you say the right kinds of stuff at church. Make sure you go to church. You don't even have to believe it. Just go. Do what you're supposed to do. Jump through the right hoops. Everything's about being conservative and superficially looking right. For some guy that goes, dude, all that falls by the wayside and just feel God. There's a whole generation of young people who went, that makes so much sense to me. Because all that other stuff is just overall. It also didn't hurt that George Harrison liked it. Um, you know, the, the, the beetle. The, the beetle that just always seemed to be the ugly stepchild. Because everybody thought Ringo was fun, and John's so talented, and Paul, oh, I like Paul. Oh, there's a fourth one. George. And he became enamored with Eastern religions when they were filming the Beatles movie Help. And then he also later kind of lived that out. Remember we talked about the, the concert for Bangladesh? Um, so he really got involved in this whole Eastern religion Bangladeshi thing. In fact, he even wrote a song about it called My Sweet Lord in 1970. Which really freaked a lot of people out because for the majority of the song, it sounds like he's singing about Jesus. I know when I was a kid, I thought this is a song about Jesus. My sweet Lord, hallelujah. My, my Lord, hallelujah. My, my Lord, honey, Krishna. My Lord, wait, wait. Back up. Because it sure sounded like the whole thing is like, I really want to know you. I want to get close to you. I want to be part of your life. I want you in my life. Oh, I love you, Lord. Hallelujah. I love you, Lord. Hallelujah. I love you, Lord. Hallelujah, Krishna. I love you, Lord. You go, you're, but that's not until you're like two-thirds of the way through the song. Three-quarters of the way through the song. A lot of people got messed up by that. Anyway, so the other Beatles started getting into this, and soon the, the whole Eastern religion thing became a huge fad. Anybody who's cool is into Eastern religions. The monkeys got into this. I mean, this, this is, everything became this, this incredible fad for hip people to be involved with. So, even by the time you get to the end of the 60s, ISKCON is coming into fire for brainwashing things. Uh, for instance, uh, your, your diet is completely controlled by the Swami and by uh, those under him. And you got to be completely vegan due to the fact that the belief that, that, that the food that you eat is echoing the consciousness of the people who made it. So if something makes your food and they're angry, then when you eat it, you will become angry. If they're a dark person, you get darker by eating that. So it's not when we go, oh, well, vegan is healthy. You go, yeah, it's, it's not that they're eating because they say it's physically healthier food. They're eating it because you're like, otherwise you'll steal the, the, the soul of the, of, the, of the cow or the pig or whatever that you're eating. And, and anything with a consciousness attached to it is bad to eat. And obviously all animals have conscience, consciousnesses and all people making the food have consciousness. So you can only eat food that is prepared by people who have the right kind of thought as they're doing it. No angry salads. No angry salads. So they had your Brussels sprouts. You go, who made the Brussels sprouts? And how, what were they thinking at the time? And I'm not kidding. I mean, that becomes an important part of every meal. On top of that, they're called to renounce all worldly goods, give it over to the cult, uh, all aspirations, focused on dancing more and chanting more to achieve a state of Krishna consciousness that moves beyond any kind of understanding logic, any kind of reasoning or anything, and you're totally just devoted to the guru and to the chanting. In fact, they're encouraged to chant the name of God, names of God, more than, uh, than 100,000 times a day. Can you do this 100,000 times a day? 
Pardon me? Not if I'm working and taking... How would you work? Why would you work? You can't work. Work means you're focused on this place instead of on God. Work means you're not able to be there for the cult. Work means that you don't know who made your coffee at the coffee station and what they were feeling at the time. You can't work and chant a hundred thousand times the name of God. No, no, no. If you truly are a caring person, you will leave your family, you will leave your work, you will leave everything, you will shave your head, you'll dress in the in the orangey-peachy robes of holy people in, in, in the East, and you will focus on chanting the names of God. You can understand why parents went, wait, what just happened to my kid? Wait, what's going on? And that's going to start out... Come back to what Cliff was saying. That's going to start affecting how you're thinking about stuff, isn't it? If a hundred thousand times a day you're doing the whole Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, you do that, you do that litany a hundred thousand times every day? Yeah, you try to explain something to somebody that's been doing that for months. Sit down. Caleb's been doing that for months. He is just smiles and joy. He has no thought in his head. And I don't mean that meanly. That's what he's been moving toward. He's been trying for that. And you try to sit down and you go, Caleb, I don't think you understand. He's like, Hare Krishna. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Listen, I, I, you want to have a relationship with God. God is a person, not a medic. Rama, Hare Rama, smile, smile. So you go, no, 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 I need you to stop and think. Can't do that. He spent months training himself not to do that at all. Most famously, they're called raise funds. And if you ever were in an airport in the 60s and 70s, it was not uncommon to see Hare Krishnas out there selling flowers and saying, would you like to learn more about this? So much so that most airports in the world had to come up with new anti-solicitation laws to prevent them from accosting people. Like, okay, which is why you don't tend to see them so much anymore. But there's a whole joke about that in the movie Airplane. You know, it's, it's, it's because that was in the 70s when this was still a thing. So everything in the life of the cult is centered around the worship of Krishna through the Swami and all of it so that members can achieve this ecstatic, mindless state of apparent joy. So, how would you respond as a Christian? You can't, and, and anytime I ask that, please don't go, you're crazy. Don't do that. That's not, that, that's not a proper response. How do you respond as a Christian to people that are doing this? If you know somebody who's into this, or if you know somebody who says, oh, this sounds so good. If, you, if somebody comes up and says, would you like to know something about Hare Krishna's consciousness? What, what's, your, what's your response to this as a Christian? Or do you just say, well, those people are toast, and walk away and focus on more healthy things? Or do you find yourself just saying, crazy. These are lost people. I mean, and about as lost as you can be in many ways. Not because they're, they're doing such horrific things. But you go, you're just a husk. You've hollowed out everything that is you. And you feel like you're close to God. And you're so not. So how do you, how do you reach out to those people? What do you feel? And your heart. And your heart. That he wants all of you, not not just ecstatic you. But you do need to reach out, don't you? I mean, people that 
that are in a, in a place like this, you, you do need to, to love them well, not just dismiss them. Maybe that's an open-ended question that you should think about rather than, I mean, I, I asked it to be answered, but at the same time, I asked it to be thought about. So think about that. Pray about that. Because this is still going on, and these people really need somebody to love them well. Okay. 1967. Israel fought the Six-Day War. Remember, Israel's been around since 1948, and things have been tense since 1948. Nobody nearby likes them. Because Europe came, carved a chunk out of the Middle East, and gave it to a bunch of Jewish people. Amazingly, the people in the Middle East didn't appreciate that, right? So, in 1967, Egypt says, okay, we're going to remind them that we are Egypt, and that they don't get to be there. So they amassed pretty much all of their, their troops along the border. And they put a bunch of planes along the border. Just kind of remind Israel, this is the massive buildup of, of Egyptian military might. And just to see the sheer tonnage of that clumped in one place along your border, that's going to intimidate you, right? Okay, if you know anything about the Israeli military, intimidation, not really something that happens, right? Their, their whole mindset, they're the ones that came up with the, the martial art called Krav Maga. Anybody know anything about Krav Maga? It's all the kill moves of everybody else's martial arts. It's, it's, it's the really intense, this ends this fight now, bits from everybody else's thrown into one discipline. If you understand Krav Maga, you'll understand the Israeli military. So, Israel, Egypt goes, saber rattling, saber rattling. And Israel bombed the snot out of them, destroying most of uh, Egypt's Because you put everything in one spot and showed it to us. So we said, okay, boom. Now, here's the question. Which one started the fight? Was it Egypt? By putting all of Egypt's stuff, a lot of Egypt's stuff, along Egypt's border on the Egyptian side, saying, we're scary? Or is it Israel for bombing Egyptian territory? Okay, hint. What should America do about North Korea at the moment? North Korea is actively testing rockets that will carry nuclear warheads and has threatened the United States and Australia and Japan and South Korea with them. Although, what kind of psycho would bomb South Korea when you live in North Korea? I don't know. Of course, Pakistan has said that they will nuke India, and they live right next door to India, so think it through. So what do you do? Do you say, well, it's North Korea, and they're doing it on North Korean soil? We can't do anything about that. Or do you send warships nearby and rattle your saber and say, you don't get to do that? I don't know. It's complicated. Anyway, sensing that this is a good time to do something, um, Jordan and Syria both joined together with what was left of the Egyptian uh, uh, military and said, we're going to invade Israel. Israel has done the clear act of aggression. We're going to show them who's boss. We have the moral high ground. This is where we get rid of Israel. Israel had one of the best trained, if not the best trained military of the world at the time. As a result, a week later, after the ceasefire, Israel took lots of stuff, because Israel just beat everybody. Everybody tried to attack Israel, Israel beat everybody. So they took the Golan Heights up, up here in Syria, and they took the Gaza Strip away from Egypt over here, and they took, most importantly, the West Bank of the Jordan 
away from Jordan. And so this is the shape of Israel today, right? Not the little Swiss cheesy look that, that it had for the first 20 years of its existence. In fact, for a while they even occupied the Sinai. So this was kind of huge. In a week, you go from Swiss cheesy, everybody hates us, to no, we more than doubled our territory, and everybody hates us. In fact, they even attacked the United States. You guys knew this, right? They went to war with the United States, 1967. Yeah, really. Okay. USS Liberty, off the coast of the Sinai, over here, monitoring the whole situation. Israel uh, was struck by several rockets from Israeli uh, airplanes, and then they were hit with a follow-up attack by an Israeli torpedo boat. Israel said, oh, we thought you were Egyptian. Which is really hard to do, because we were flying an American flag and weren't built anything like an Egyptian ship, and had clearly American markings on it, and they knew we were Americans. So, what's up with that? And America said, wait, what you just do? And, and, and I can only imagine the, the, what happened in like the Israeli high command, because it was really, yeah, what did we just do? Because America just immediately responded and said, how dare you do this? And they're like, oh, it was a mistake. It was so horrible, 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 horrible. Horrible, somebody got fired, mistake. The U.S. The US said, you are our only ally in the Middle East. Yeah, it was a mistake. Don't let this happen again. Yeah, 34 men died, 171 were injured. Ship didn't actually sink, but it didn't look good. Like, yeah, 200 people. But, uh, yeah, it was a mistake. Israel, though, demonstrates the whole world. Yeah, we're serious. We're grown-ups. And nobody likes us. And nobody trusts us. And all that, all that is going to come back to bite them in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War. But, to them, it's crucial that they got that area around, around Jerusalem. It's like, we had everything to the west of Jerusalem, now we have everything to the east of Jerusalem, which always throws Americans that don't know much about the topography here, because we go, wait, the West Bank is on the east of Jerusalem? Why do you call it the West Bank? Because it's the West Bank of the Jordan, which is to the east of Jerusalem. On stuff, 1960s. By the way, United Methodist Church gets formed in, in 1968. If you remember, the, United, the Methodist Episcopal Church has been around for a long time, right? Because Methodist is an adjective, not a noun. There is no Methodist. Methodist is how you do your Episcopalianism. So for the longest time, you're just an Episcopal and you do it a Methodist-y way. But then, in 1939, all, a lot of those branches of Methodist-type churches came together to form the Methodist Church. And so Methodist became a noun. Now you are a Methodist, for the first time accurately in history. And the whole point of the name was, you remove all the qualifiers, you're just Methodist. You're not, you're not Episcopal Methodist, you're not Southern Methodist, you're not Protestant Methodist, you're this. 1968, they voted to join the smaller Evangelical United Brethren Church to form the United Methodist Church. So it's, it just keeps kind of growing and, and, and building. And on paper, it's a fairly conservative 
mainline denomination. You know, we've talked about mainline denominations like Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists. You go, you've been around for such a long time, you tend to drift somewhat liberal because you've become more focused on your structures and less on theology and on doctrine. But on paper, they're pretty much about the most conservative of the mainline denominations. It's the second largest Protestant denomination after the Southern Baptists. For instance, in their doctrinal statements, they are very clear, and they use the same kind of wording that we do in the covenant. They're very clear that, quote, sexual relations are affirmed only within the covenant bond of a faithful, monogamous, heterosexual marriage, and not within same-sex unions or polygamy. That's the official stance of the United Methodist Church. That's pretty conservative, isn't it? In practice, 60% of United Methodists say that homosexuality should be accepted. 49% support same-sex marriage. A lot of the conferences and ju jurisdictions have approved openly gay and lesbian clergy, including those that aren't, that aren't married, even though you can be married now in the United States. So unmarried, open sexual unions of the same sex. So, is it a conservative or a liberal denomination? That's a big debate going on right now in the UMC. You can understand that, can't you? Is it a good... Because what you say on paper is not what you're doing in practice. So you either need to change what you say on paper and embrace your liberalism, or you need to change your practice and embrace your conservatism. But you can understand why a lot of people watching the news are like, oh, very liberal denomination. And, and it's kind of the anti-covenant in a lot of ways, in that a lot of the clergy and the high muckety-mucks in the, in the United Methodist Church are saying, no, please, let's remain conservative. Well, a lot of the grassroots people are saying, no, let's move liberal. Whereas in the covenant, it's like a lot of the covenant like uh, uh, parishioners are saying, no, let's stay conservative. And, and all the people coming out of North Park are, no, let's move liberal. So it's it becomes a question. At some point, you've got to decide what you're going to be. Because at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to choose sides. Right now, the official stance on the United Methodist Church is, let's confer about this. This is in conference, and we will continue to talk about it. Which is no, 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 no. It's just you know, we'll just we're not going to say that. But that is, by the way, at the moment, the official response in the covenant as well. You know, we're let's talk about this. Let's discuss this. And what did you say? Still do whatever we want to do. That is kind of what happens when you're in conference. Everybody goes, well, I'm just going to do this while we're still talking about it." Remind me of that when we talk about the People's Park. Remind me about that. 1968, also the year that the Children of God was founded. Anybody ever hear of the Children of God? This was unpleasant to research. Anyway, they reached out to a new countercultural movement that's known as hippies. You know where that term comes from? Hippies? Okay. The word hip as an expression of in the know, we can trace it back at least to 1902. Um, Cartoonist Tad Dorgan uh, used it in his cartoons, possibly in reference to guys who, who had liquor in their hip flasks and nobody but them knew about it. So they're, they're hip guys. They have hip, hip liquor. He's also the same guy that coined terms like dumbbell, talking about somebody who's stupid, or for crying out loud as an exclamation, or the cat's meow, the cat's pajamas as superlatives, or cheaters meaning eyeglasses, or hard-boiled meaning tough detective. All those, this guy, Tad Dorgan. So, like half of the slang that you hear in the first half of the of, of the century 
uh, of the 20th century in the United States? Yeah, one guy. So, you're looking for slang, this is your guy. Cartoon, did you say? Mm -hmm. The cartoonist, the uh, newspaper cartoonist. Which newspaper? A couple different newspapers, actually. Um, to be hip, or it's cognate hep, because musicians, after other people start using the word hip, they're like, yeah, we're hip, and they're like, yeah, I'm hip too. Okay, we're hep. You know, because we're not like you. Start building sneeches. Look it up. Um, so, to be hep or to be hip was to be cool when everybody else was squares, and it turned into being a hipster in a 1944 article by Harry Gibson, and then morphed into being a hippie in a 1961 article by Norman Mailer. So, all this is talking about to being in the know when everybody else isn't hippies. Anyway, so reaching out to the hippies is. A, a Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor named David Berg, who who's decides that this is a people group that he can really touch and connect with. Uh, and when I say touch, I need to be careful because he, he lost his license in the CMA because of sexual impropriety with a church employee. But he's like, no, I, I still want to be a minister. I still think i got a lot to share. So he created something called Teens for Christ and then focused on being a, a family. Of, of all these hippie kids, with Berg being essentially the surrogate father. In fact, he was eventually known to uh, Church of God, uh, or Children of God members as Dad, or Father David, or Moses David, or just Mo, or King David, or eventually Grandpa, as he got older and older. And he taught this new sexual freedom that hippies just said, that makes total sense to me. You know, I, I want to be close to God, but I've always been told that if I'm close to God, I can't do drugs and have a lot of sex. He's like, oh, crazy people told you that. No, 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 no. Left his own wife and began a relationship with his church secretary named Karen Zerby, but he called her Maria, and no, I don't know why. But um, he taught his followers God loved sex. God wants you to have sex, as much sex as you can possibly have. It's a crucially important part of being a Christian, is having a lot of sex. They had some interesting ripple effects. Um, first off, sex became part of leadership meetings, worship services, etc. Group sex, pairing off with people you hadn't met before. Let's get together and do a Bible study, which of course will include sex. It just is part of it. it. You become inured to it. Secondly, he began printing information because he would always send out these like monthly letters and quasi-regular letters and stuff, writing about the importance of sex and publishing nude pictures of Maria. And, and young children, like, start getting really creepy. I mean, nothing specifically, but it's a lot of really creepy things. Uh, publishing a picture of a really little girl naked and saying, look at her come hither look. It's just, it's repellent. And then he writes articles in, in, in his illustrated letters, because they always have photographs and cartoons in it, about the need to let children be the fully sexual beings that Berg said God wanted them to be. Children, we, we make them infantile. Children, children are fully involved in the, in, the, in the church of God, shouldn't they? Children are just as much people as you are, and since sex is an important part of worship, children should be treated as sexual beings. They understand things just as much as you do. So children should be fully involved in the worship of God, just like adults. You go, um, no, they're children. Should they be involved? Absolutely. At their level. Should they be fully involved? I 
Absolutely. At their level. There's a reason why I don't let my toddler drive my car. And it's not just that her feet didn't hit the pedals. I don't trust a five-year-old driving a car. I do trust a drive a five-year-old pushing her plastic lawnmower around the, the living room. And that's how I train her to push my lawnmower around my yard. I, you should involve your children. You should engage with your children. You should genuinely teach them what it means to be a Christian and involved in the church. That doesn't mean that they're little miniature adults. Because we use a whole different word for that. Call children. Third, 1974, he instituted the practice of flirty fishing. Usually explaining it in comic book form. So I'm going to show it in comic book form. But I had to be really careful when I looked at this because most of the comics put out by this cult are pornographic. So bear with me. The basic idea of flirting fishing uh, was that female church members should use their feminine wiles to lure men in so that they can share the gospel. Um, here, if you can't read it, this is, he says, oh, you're beautiful. She says, thank you, I'm glad you think so. And, so. and then the little narrative here says, if they fall in love with you first before they find out it's the Lord, it's just God's bait to hook them. Fascinate the fish with the Lord. Make it irresistible. Bring him back to, for more with thy love and mercy, thy lost soul that we don't want to lose. Not one Lord. Now, there was a derivation of this back in college that we referred to as missionary dating, where people would date a non-Christian because they're hoping that maybe somehow that person would come to know the Lord. Always a bad idea, which is why it's expressly forbidden in Scripture. You know, you're never supposed to be involved in a relationship, a romantic relationship with somebody who doesn't share the same faith that you do. Don't, don't do that. Um, but this is a little different than missionary dating. Because Berg likes scriptures like Matthew 4.19 where Jesus said, Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Isn't that what this is? With others, like 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's not your body anymore. To argue that you should actually be willing to have sex with men in order to bring them to Christ. So, I had to cut off the whole bottom part of this picture. But so, it says here, the main thing we're trying to give them is God's love, not just sex. The guy says, wow, she says, I am God's love. And so that these guys can actually experience the genuine love of God by having sex with you. In fact, he's very open about calling these evangelists God's whores or hookers for Jesus. It's what you do because it's not your body anymore. Right? Pardon me? I didn't hear. Anyway, apparently I don't want you to, from their reaction, I don't want to hear. Okay, from within a few years, Berg realized very few men are being converted. Amazingly. It doesn't work. It does, however, it's extremely effective in reaching guys. There's a lot of guys being reached for Christ. An amazing number of guys really like it if a pretty girl goes, Hi, because I love Jesus, I would love to have sex with you. And they go, Yeah, okay. So, flirty fishing quickly became the biggest source of revenue for the children of God through open prostitution. So you literally become hookers for Jesus. Again, from the woman's perspective, this is an act of worship. Giving their bodies as a spiritual act of worship, because it's not really their bodies anymore, so that the work of the Lord could be supported. Okay, this is what happens. That's exactly what it is. It becomes a sex cult. This is, this is exactly what happens 
when you say, I feel really strongly, but I don't learn genuine doctrine. I really, really, really want to be a servant for Christ. You know, I always felt that this verse means, stop. You need to truly, rightly divide the word of truth. You need to make sure that you are genuinely understanding this, or else your sincere devotion to the Lord is going to go to extremely dark places. And I don't care whether you are selling your body and giving the money to your church, or you are peeling the flesh off of people in an inquisition. If you are genuinely trying to follow the Lord, and you haven't got a clue what that looks like, you're going to go to some dark places. Conversely, if you genuinely have solid doctrine and have absolutely no passion about following the Lord at all, you're not going to go to any places at all. You're just going to sit in your basement and go, I love God. Now it's time for me to go to sleep. Okay, what you really need is correct, genuine, growing understanding of God and deepening, enriching passion for actually living that out. You need loving the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, isn't it? There's a reason why Jesus said it that way. Anyway, even though they're married, even though they, they have committed relationships, all of these women in the, in the church, uh, the children of God, cultivated sexual relationships, not only to get money, but I also cultivated them with like political officials uh, to help with immigration laws and things so that they could be mistress. So you'd be married to your husband, but you'd be a mistress of like a political official so that you could kind of smooth the way for people to just you. In fact, they even started joining full-time escort services, um, secular escort services, to bring in money for the cult. Now, they're having sex with multiple partners all the time, as much sex as they can, and the cult preached against birth control. So they were averaging 700 births a year as a cult and growing leaps and bounds by that. Um, by the time you get to the mid-80s, they had, I don't know, 10, 15,000 people, the majority of which are under the age of 18. The majority of which actually are under the age of 13. Which changes the dynamics of everything. All of a sudden, in 1986, leadership says, um, any sexual contact between an adult and a, and a minor is bad. Really, 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 really bad. Let's communicate you. And we're really going to be paying attention to this. By the way, every church says that's not cool, but an amazing number of churches don't have to issue a clear directive like this. I mean, if the covenant sent out a, a letter to all the churches saying, everybody needs to stop having sexual contact with children, you'd freak, wouldn't you? Whereas in church, the children of God, they're like, huh, okay then. I guess things have changed. And yes, flirty fishing and escort servicing, they continued openly through the end of the 80s. After David Berg died in 94, the church starts downplaying it. I'm not saying they don't do it anymore. It's kind of downplayed it, but they have been significant. They have worked really hard in reducing the amount of sexual child abuse in the, in the church. Today, the cult has renamed itself, rebranded itself. You won't find Children of God. You will find the Family International. They reach out and minister to 95 different countries around the world. There are, I don't even know. I, I have no idea how many there are right now. Lots, lots of them. 
and sharing the unique understanding about what it means to have a relationship with God. For instance, you couldn't find it on their website, but you'll find it in some of their literature that to have a full worship experience, you should have an orgasm as part of that. Um, whether that's in your personal prayer time or in a worship service, you know, that's, that's an important part of that. And you should really picture Jesus physically having sex with you. That's an important part of worshiping. Because isn't he the, 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 the groom of us as a bride? Doesn't the Bible over and over and over again use sexual imagery? You go, not uses romantic imagery with it. Yeah, sexual imagery. By the way, if you're a guy, homosexuality is bad, so you should picture yourself being a woman while Christ is having sex with you. Because that's, I mean, otherwise, it's just weird. They also really focus on the importance of reaching out to children, because this is the Family International, and they're relying on spirit helpers, such as angels, or Winston Churchill, or gods of ancient Greek myths. All these spiritual helpers who have gone before you, and if you can call on them, they'll help you against the, the attacks of demons that would want to drag you away from the cult. So if something bad happens, say, Amelia Earhart, please be here with me right now. That's important. They also focus on the teaching of the power of God's keys to the kingdom. Didn't God give, didn't Christ give the keys of the kingdom to people? Absolutely. And so the keys of the kingdom will help you overcome obstacles in life. If you're if you're struggling, if you're nervous, pray for the the key of peace. And the key of peace. Claim that key of peace and it'll give you peace. Claim that key of encouragement and it'll give you encouragement. Claim that key and that key. There's a lot of imagery of big keys going into small slots. I'm not kidding. They have absolutely no idea how sexualized all of their stuff is. Going through their art and trying to find appropriate things is hard. Pictures they have of angels, hard. Picture they have of the naked guy so that you could put the, the armor of God on him as a child. Let's go. Really? You have no idea about how inappropriate this is? None. Utterly clueless. By the way, the keys also power your angelic spacecraft, known as keycraft, that you can fly. And all of this is focused on family, making sure you bring your children up in the, in, the, in the Lord like this, in the same faith. How should we as Christians respond to this cult? And you can't just say, ew, or y'all wacky. Yeah. Because this is just so much against... Isn't it? Okay, do you remember what came right before when, when Paul said, you're not your own, your, your body is not your own, you're bought with a price? What was the context of that? And specifically, temple prostitutes. The idea of sex being part of worship? No, it isn't. Sex is an important part and a, and a completely appropriate part of marriage. It's God-honoring. In its context, this is not its context. Don't be doing that. And so, yeah, it, to be able to come back and say, this works because of the purity of it. Doesn't that matter? This is something that's designed for this and this context with these people in this way. What else? Yeah. I guess, like, why are, you, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, is, is it, are you doing this because, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know, like, are, are you doing things because you want to, just because you want to, or you feel like it, or are you doing things because, I don't know. And, and there's no, there's no context here with, like, the larger historical church either. I mean, it's it's totally um, 
and, and, I, and maybe that's part of what they're, they're reacting to, I guess, but maybe they, I would say, you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't, like, make your own thing and then say it's actually, you know, God-honoring and you're Christians and, you're, and this is the church. Like, right. you can't say, well, we're going to do this completely wacky thing that has nothing to do with, with church and then say it's church. But you make you, you make a good point because that's they would argue right. Everybody else has taken church and strangled it. We have finally let it loose like God always intended. And so every argument—I wholeheartedly agree with you—but every argument, I shouldn't say it this way, an amazing number of arguments that we would do along that those lines, they would see as an argument for what they're doing. You go, nobody else has ever done it this way. This is not the way your grandparents did this. And they go, exactly. But to be able to say, this is intended. This is the way scripture intended. I mean, they spent 50 years as a cult being indoctrinated in this. Like a generation of this cult, maybe three generations, um, have, have been indoctrinated into this way of thinking. And so it's not even like your grandparents didn't do this. this yeah, they did. Your grandparents started this cult. So it's like, okay, let's, let's rephrase. This is not the way scripture intended this. If you go back to the Bible, you purport to follow, because they're forever quoting scripture. So this is where I think your argument has its strongest basis. Go back to scripture and say, what does the Bible actually say? Okay, you, you, you don't care what the Catholic Church said in 800 AD. You don't care what Luther said in 1500 AD. Fine. What did Paul say in 50 AD? Can we go back to that? Because that's the part you do quote, and that's the part you do say you want to follow are you really following this? Are you essentially just hedonists? In their own way, they are as lost and as as broken and as hedonistic and as sensual as the Hare Krishnas, aren't they? In a very different way. The Hare Krishnas are saying, we don't want to be thinking about God at all. We, we just want to be feeling God all the time. And we don't do anything naughty. In fact, we're squeaky clean in what we're doing. And these guys are like, all we do is naughty. And we're thinking about God all the time. But in both of these, you say, your group, your cult, is based on doing what makes you feel good. What makes you happy? In the short term. It's the same reason that people take heroin. Talk to somebody who's been a heroin addict for months and say, yeah, enjoying this? It's like, but in the short term, yes. For a good hour, I'm enjoying this. What do they do with they have a lot of it. So much, and yep. I mean, medically, even to go and to get the statistics and to see what's going on, as, as, this is just... Especially in the 80s, it was yeah. rampant. I mean, they, they, almost everybody in the cult had an STD. Because not all STDs are uh, deadly, just unpleasant. But AIDS yeah. was extremely helpful in that. Because all of a sudden they're like, oh, I think we need to start using wisdom and condoms and things. Well, then what about the emotions? Because you're not dedicated to one, like in a family. So how do they do the family thing when you're not really dedicated? You're dedicated to your children. You're dedicated to your husband. I mean, not you know, sexually. Sexually, you're dedicated to everybody. But, you know, emotion. But that's the thing. It sucks all the emotion out of that. It, it sucks all the emotion other than this feels good at the moment out of, uh, out of the sexual act. The, the whole point of sex was designed to be something that creates intimacy between a husband and wife, that bonds you together on a relational level, as deep and as vulnerably as you possibly can. That's the whole 
point of this. And all that's gone. All that is removed. All that's left is exactly what the world wants to be all that's left. Watch any TV show on any network and see, are they really arguing that sex should be bonding, mutually intimate, vulnerable thing between committed people? Or are they saying, you're cute, this feels good, these guys at least add the, and it honors Jesus. You know, it so doesn't. But the idea being, in both of these groups, it's all about, this feels good at this moment, and that's all that matters to me at this moment. Maybe helping them to understand that, that question, why are you doing this in the first place? What is your, your motivation? Because it seems to be what feels good, and there's got to be more to it than that. Because always ends with you being empty. 1969. Bloody Thursday. Anybody remember what Bloody Thursday is at Berkeley's campus? I'm, okay. University of California Berkeley campus, UC Berkeley, is pretty much, if there's ever, if there's ever a university in the United States you want to be the liberal campus, it's UC Berkeley. That's, that's pretty much, that's, they're pretty much the poster child of that. That's where the Free speech movement started off in 64-65, is at Berkeley's campus. Uh, Sproul uh, Plaza, outside Sproul Hall, had been designated a free speech area where students could express themselves, do anything you want to do. It's, it's totally free speech, ever since the free speech movement started. But they still restricted that to, you know, you have to be a UC Berkeley student. You have to be able to show, you, not anybody can just walk on campus and say whatever they feel like saying. You, we're going to try to monitor this, which makes a certain amount of sense. But in 1964, a student refused to show his ID. Campus security came and said, can I see your ID? I want to make sure that you're actually a student. And he's like, no, you're the man keeping me down. I'm not showing you any ID. So they detained him in the, in the, in the campus security car and were talking to him about it. 3,000 students came and started shaking the car, demanding his release, saying, you are restricting his freedom of speech. Like, actually, we're trying to trying to support his freedom of speech. But yes, we are restricting his freedom of speech because we didn't know if he's a student. They're like, yes, you sh that's restriction. You shouldn't have any restriction on free speech. So when the university acquired a plot of land adjacent to the campus, they started developing it. They tore down everything that was there, and they ran out of funds to develop it. So there's this kind of beat up looking plot of land right next door to the campus. And the students said, hey, can we call this our free speech area? Completely unrestricted free speech, call it the People's Park, and we get to do anything we want to on it. Can we do that? And the university said, no. Tell you what, um, we don't actually have plans for this yet. We're not going to authorize that. We're not going to condemn it. We're not going to say, absolutely not. But we're not authorizing that. We're going to be in conference about that for a little bit. All right? What happens when you're in conference? People do whatever they want while you're in conference, right? So the students, along with several local business owners, they said, well, we want to improve the business owners say, we want this to be a not a big, ugly, beat-up-looking lot. And the students say, we want our people's park. So they all came together to start constructing a park. They cleared out all the garbage. They started planting trees there. It's going to be beautiful. Isn't it better? I mean, you got a, you got a broken-down, beat-up, garbage-filled lot, but they planted trees and grass and stuff like that. That's a good thing, yes? Everybody agree that's a good thing? Absolutely, it's a good thing. In fact, if you want to go on your neighbor's property and rip out that ugly thing he's got in his backyard and put in good stuff, you should do that. It's a good thing, right? Plant a tree. 
Isn't that what we just said? It's not their property, but is that a good thing that they cleaned up the university's property and started planting a tree and planting grass? That's a good thing, right? So if you think your neighbor's property is ugly, you should go and rip that out and put in stuff that's pretty. It's got honor in it. It depends on which side of the fence you're on. That too. Uh, you know, but that is interesting because Native Americans, they say, no, you can't own property, but this is ours. You know, so it's just not ours in perpetuity. It's ours because we said this area is ours. Those look like our, our horses, so they're our horses. If you take our horses, we'll come and kill you. But it's not like we own them. They're just ours. It is interesting. Anyway, the university said, okay, now we're starting to develop plans. We know we want to put in a sports field, and this is going to be part of it, so you can't use this as a park. You understand? Please stop. Please stop planting things there. We're not going to put a parking lot there. We're not going to put other. We are. It's going to be a, a athletic field. It'll be. It'll be good. You're right. Athletics. <laughs> athletics. The, the thing that brings money into the university. But I agree. I mean, it, 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 they put so much money into athletics, and yet it's their property. They get to right. But anyway, so they said, okay, we'll. It's May sixth. Make a deal. We'll, we'll 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 consider any kind of options. We won't do anything until we talk to you. Talk to us about what you're wanting, but this is what we're going to develop. So please stop. So people started complaining about that. On May 13th, the school finally said, "All right, we're going to build a fence around the property because you won't stop working in it. You won't stop changing it into what you want it to be. It's our property, not your property." So May 13th, they said, "We're building a fence around the property." to make you stop. And so students began protesting that, saying, you don't get to do that. Actually, we do. It's our property. Now we're back to, if your neighbor has ugly junk in his property, he's got this rusted out old hulk of a car there, and you know, it's probably leaching oil into it. If you get rid of that car, have it towed away, and plant some beautiful bushes and trees there, that's a good thing, yes? Aesthetically, yes. Legally, no. Morally, debatable. Early on May 15th, a fencing company supported by 250 police officers put a fence around the property. Because they're like, really, really, you've got to stop. <laughs> well, why would you send 250 police officers? Because you know your kids are rats and they're going to do something physically to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know which side of the fence they're on. Okay. 3,000 protesters arrived to stop them from building the fence. And the 250 police officers said, this is why we're here. One of the protesters took a microphone, because they, they played a rally and they had a, the mics there, and he took the microphone and he said, let's take the park. It's our park, because we want it. They own it, because they bought it, and... They own the deed to it, and their name is on it, and it's adjacent to their university, but we feel like it should be ours. So it's really ours. Isn't it? So we can just take it. And a full-scale riot began. 3,000 against 250. Actually, by the time that it hit the riot, it was nearly 4,000 protesters, and there are only about 159 city police and security officers there by the time the riot kicks in. Protesters opened a fire hydrant, began pelting the officers with rocks and bricks, and the police responded with nightsticks and, and riot batons. 
because you just want to build a park, man. Peace. Peace and joy. Governor Ronald Reagan, who's picture just disappeared. Governor Ronald Reagan authorized the police to use whatever force they deemed appropriate to defend themselves and stop the rioters. Or do you disagree? Do you agree? Do you disagree? They're getting thrown, people are throwing bricks at their heads. Defending themselves and stopping the riot are two different things. Like, making it so that the park can be built and Making it so that you don't kill me, or I'm defending myself, those are two different things. They are. So the overwhelmed police officers called in more deputies. Eventually they had 791 officers there, standing against a crowd that had grown to 6,000 people. Everybody being violent. And they began firing tear gas and shotguns into the crowd. The idea being that they would be birdshot in the shotguns. But looking at uh, people's... Uh, hospital records afterwards, um, there was double ammo in at least some of the shotguns being fired into the crowd. So several officers were injured, at least one was knifed, and 128 protesters were injured and one student was killed. Governor Reagan declared a state of emergency. Strangely enough, declared a state of emergency. The city said, we don't need that, we've got this covered. He said, really? You just fired shotguns into, a, into an angry mob of 6,000 people fighting against your own police officers. So he sent in 2,700 National Guard to restore order, arguing, once the dogs of war have been unleashed, you must expect things will happen, and the people, being human, will make mistakes on both sides. Much of the protest against the occupation of the National Guard was relatively benign. And this, this is the moment where you get that classic picture of the flower children putting flowers in the muzzles of rifles. And unlike the opening of Watchmen, they did not then fire. It's just, they just stuck flowers in the ends of their guns. But they also gave troops lemonade laced with LSD and brownies with marijuana in it and taunted them and teased them and called them all sorts of nasty names and things. And it was unpleasant all the way around. Civic leaders attacked Reagan and the authorities, taking an incendiary situation and making explosive. They're like, you sent in troops, we had this under control, you're making everything worse. Uh, this is this is horrible. Reagan countered by saying, this is interesting, he said, all of it began, and he's talking to those business owners who had helped uh, the students to create the park. He said, all of it began the first time that some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. You don't get to pick which laws you obey. It doesn't work like that. So what's the correct response? Should you have let them just build their park? It's a good thing. Isn't it a good thing? Better than that sports area. I don't need more sports. They were going to do concerts in the park. Music is more important than sports, isn't it? But sports more important than music. It's not the wow of the importance of the law. You don't get to choose your law. So the I government should, we're going through the same stuff. To protect you, the government, to protect all people, the government should require you to follow the law. To protect you, the government should be able to fire shotguns into a crowd. Yes? What's the correct answer? 
it's complicated. I'm not saying that there isn't a correct answer. I'm just saying the quick and easy, well, Reagan's absolutely right. Or, well, Reagan's absolutely horrible. Which is it? Yeah, but nobody's getting hurt over that. <laughs> so it became this touchstone for the whole era. This is what the late 1960s became all about. And everybody tends to think now in the 60s there's time of public unrest. Not really till the very end. Kent State, yeah. But this became this thing where it's liberals versus conservatives, flower children versus the military. They're sticking flowers in the muzzles of rifles. This, between people who just wanted to build a park and the establishment with a capital E. This, this is the big thing. 177 UC Berkeley faculty members said that they were, quote, unwilling to teach until peace has been achieved by the removal of police and troops, unquote. That's how we'll get peace. If there just weren't any cops here, there wouldn't have been any trouble. Right? There wouldn't have been a riot if the university hadn't put up a fence and brought in cops. Therefore, the cops are what caused the problem. So if they would have gone in and just started building their complex or whatever they were going to do there, they wouldn't have had any problems as long as no cops were there because the children were going to obey that law. No, 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 because it's the university's problem for putting the fence up and wanting to do their stuff. If the university had just let us do what we felt like doing, there wouldn't have been a riot. If everybody would have just let us do whatever we wanted to do, there wouldn't have been a problem. Which, of course, is Reagan's whole point. It's like, so you get to do whatever you want to do and ignore the law so long as it's what you wanted to do? You don't get to do that. So you understand this is a little bit more complex. I'm not, I'm not defending Reagan, and I'm not defending the, the protesters. I'm saying, arguably, the protesters have an interesting idea. Although the idea that the free speech area in the, in the university was just not free enough is almost a little concerning But things. Berkeley is just too conservative for me. Like, I'm not sure I want to give you a less conservative area, but I, it, yeah. Um, it's, it's a public school, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, State school. I, yeah. So I wonder, I wonder how much of the idea went into it to say, well, it's a state school. It's a public school. That means it's not its own entity. You belong to us, the people, yep. because you you're you're subservient to us, and and what we desire. So I'm, I'm imagining that that probably went a long way to, like, um, in, in terms of the, the, the protesters' thought and, and how they were going about this whole thing and thinking about this this space and the university and thinking about <coughs> the leadership of the university as their servants. Yep. And that is that is exactly what the, what the um, community leaders argued in that conference where they were talking to Reagan, where Reagan answered that way. Uh -huh. They said, it's the public school. It's subservient to the people. He says, yes, all the people, not just you. And these are your duly elected representatives who are trying to lead this for everybody. You don't you don't get to do that. If, if the school says, this is what we're going to do with school public property, you don't, as a small number of people, just unilaterally get to decide this. And the business leader said, but we are the people that this group is. We're the only people that actually, other than those administrators, we're the only people that actually have a thought here. So you're exactly right. That is exactly the argument that they made. I, I got it. OK, go ahead. Weren't there some kind of riots and protests in Berkeley this year a couple times? Uh, yes. Yeah. Right now, just recently. Oh, that's right, yeah. Anyway, it didn't help when on May 20th, the National Guard helicopters dropped tear gas to disperse a peaceful 
demonstration oh, of a thousand don't protesters? Do that. that wasn't a good thing. Except that they argued the crowd was in violation of martial law. There's martial law in Berkeley, and you're not allowed to have, uh, have, a, have a group like that, and we told them to disperse, and they didn't. So they're ignoring the law, which is where the problem came in the first place. They knew full well that they weren't allowed to do this. We told them to disperse, and they didn't, and so we tear-gassed them. And again, I go back to who's correct, and I'm like, you don't get to just ignore the law, especially when you've just gotten in trouble for just ignoring the law. Having said that, it's a bunch of peaceful protesters, women, children, and you tear-gassed a thousand of them. This is, okay, remind me of Cromwell. Remember when we talked about Albert Cromwell in Ireland? I'm like, I agree with 85% of your conclusions and disagree with 95% of how you do it. It's like, you don't get to just ignore the law. Right. So I'm going to shoot you in the head. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, you don't do that. No. Ding, ding. No, rewind. We don't shoot him in the head for just ignoring it. Even Reagan said, well, that was a tactical mistake. Gassing children? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. But the anti-war, anti-establishment, countercultural movement in America said, we got our alibi. This is how the establishment thinks of us. We just wanted to build a park, and they shot us in the head and tear gas us for wanting to build a park. Okay, from our perspective, you flouted university law, you disregarded everything, you attacked people who were trying to build a fence on their own property, you attacked police officers, and we responded to force with force. So which is it? It's both sides being stupid, isn't it? Both sides doing what felt in that extreme moment to be the thing to do. It's in this context that Woodstock happens. And we'll pick up with that next week. How would you synopsize what we've been talking about here of the late 60s, religiously speaking, personally speaking, socially speaking? It's a revelation of values. It is. It's a scripture. Free love and free speech. Where I lived through that. I know. <laughs> I, I, re I remember, you know, street and dance, you, uh, you know, sit-ins, streaking, mm -hmm. protests, movements. Mm -hmm. It was a wild time. Mm -hmm. And throughout, I mean, again, people always think of the way they dressed in the late 60s. You go, yeah. Everyone always thinks, you know, Brady Bunch with all the long hair and wild. You go, yeah, look at the early seasons of the Brady Bunch. Short hair, straight leg, you know, pants. There were two very different Americas, even amongst young people, even amongst families in, in America at that time. It was not all a bunch of hippies. You go, there were hippies, and there were decidedly not hippies at the same time in America. Again, Brady Bunch, nice snapshot of that. Look at early seasons, look at later seasons, go, same culture, two different ways of looking at it. I think part of it was with the Vietnam War, and I think it was so many in our generation were forced to participate in a war that no one believed in, in our government. So in some ways there was protests, you know, why are we doing this? Why is a whole generation being killed for, for a war that doesn't make sense? And that's what, but then there's other protests against all law. And I remember at Milliken, there was a bunch of um, a sports team that actually yeah. ruined a fast food place when they stopped on their way home. And the whole campus was supporting them because the university made uh, did discipline. Yep. And I say, what? When you when you read about what they did, this is unconscionable. It is. And but yet, it was against authority in general. Again, when you remember, we talked about it, as we go into the forties and into the fifties, this absolute clampdown of we will be conservative. We will be very 
artificially cookie cutter stamped in square everything is exactly like this it's very um, stylized and very controlled the generation that comes out of that just goes push explode no I am no I will not be boxed in and so there some of the things that are being protested you know it's like separate but equal laws you should sit there and go protest that absolutely that's horrific and some of the things like the Vietnam War where you could go I don't think we should be doing that it's like is that as clear a moral question as institutionalized racism um no but sure a debatable one I get where you say I, I'm kind of losing all whole respect for authority so yeah I'm gonna protest this and you get things like and sex should be between a man and a woman no you shouldn't be getting stoned all the time see that's all that the establishment says I just want to build a park we're the love people you go if you protest everything you're not protesting anything anymore you're just in open rebellion you go against what everything we have to have a cause otherwise it's all just about your feelings of rebellion I want not this that's where we'll pick it up next week by the way this is 50 years ago when we think about this we go yeah you know the relatively recent past year. No, two generations ago so everything that we deal with today is not the ripple effects of this where you know this is your parents did this you go your grandparents going through this and you're if you're in high school going this is multiple generations growing up within this and so we have a very our, our culture has morphed out of this. We need to be aware of where this came from so we understand the, the mindset today where we go, but I automatically get this because understand where that comes from. We really need to stop now. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to be part of your family, your true family. Thank you for the purity that you give us. Thank you for the truth that you give us in your word. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to be your ambassadors to a broken world. Lord, help us not to be policemen of what is right. And help us not to be sensual hedonists about whatever we feel. Help us to love you with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength. And to live that out. Help us to be good children. In Jesus' name, amen.